Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented brings industrial conversations that matter, serving up the most relevant conversations on industrial tech. Our vision is a world where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 83 of the podcast, the topic is factory journalism, and our guest is Michel Seagrest, president of Navigate Content. In this con uh, conversation, we talk about what's happening in factories these days. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, for process engineers, and for shop floor operators, hosted by futurist Trond Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Michelle, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine as well. <laughs> Good. So I thought we would talk about factories, and, and you have this amazing ability to connect with people there, and you've been doing what I think you call factory journalism. I don't know if that even exists or existed before you. <laughs> so we'll talk a lot about that. Yeah, um, sure. I think it may yeah. be a new term. We'll make it popular. We'll create a new hashtag. <laughs> okay, let's do that. In terms of background, you you started out uh, at Auburn University and That's then right. you sort of became a reporter. Yeah. And eventually, I don't know how long ago you became a podcaster. So, you know, let's chat about your Factory of the Future podcast. So everything is tied to factories for you. Yeah, it hasn't always been that way. Um, as you said, I went to Auburn University and got a journalism degree and I had wanted to be a reporter all my life. And so that was my dream was to be a reporter. And I started out as a sports reporter, actually. So I was the first female sports writer in the SEC. And back in the days when women weren't always on the sidelines of all the games, uh, but I was in print journalism not on TV and not on radio or anything like that. But I just wanted to write stories and be in the middle of things and ask questions. I've just always had this natural curiosity. So I was a reporter for a really long time. And um, when I slowed down a little bit to have children and raise children, I um, continued to write. I became a freelance writer and I started writing for magazines. I quit writing for newspapers and quit being a sports journalist because the time constraints were really difficult for raising kids because all the sports events happen at nights or on weekends. So I got into book publishing and magazine publishing, and I continued to be a writer. I wrote about all kinds of things. I, I covered police beat, and I covered courts, and I covered lifestyles, and I covered food, and I wrote about everything you can possibly think of sports, of course, uh, and business, and just all kinds of all kinds of topics. And when my children got a little bit older, I decided I had been working from home for a while and I wanted to go back into the corporate environment. And I just answered an ad for a magazine editor, but it didn't say what the magazine was about. And so I went into the interview and I told the guy, you know, I can write about anything. It doesn't matter. I'm a reporter, so I will ask the right questions. I'll meet the right people. If I don't know the answers, I'll find them. And, uh, I, you know, I can write about anything. So what's the magazine about? And the owner of the company said, well, the magazine is about pumps. You know, it's about pumps and valves and motors and pumping systems and wastewater pumps and oil and gas pumps. And I was like, whoa, okay, uh, you know, what is this? And so I went home and started researching a little bit. And I realized that pumps were really important in our world, even though I didn't know it. Uh, I read an article about how you can't have clean water without pumps. 
And I thought, wow, you know, if you can't have clean water without pumps and you can't flush your toilet without pumps and you can't have electricity without pumps, uh, the power plants don't work without pumps and factories don't work without pumps, then this must be a sustainable industry. And it'd probably be kind of recession proof. So I think I'll take this job. And so I did. And the first six months or so, I walked around, you know, going, what's a pump? (laughs) You know, just I had to learn what that was. And I was writing all of a sudden for engineers, you know, very intelligent audience that knew all kinds of stuff about engineering and how pumps work. And it was just such a great community of people. You know, the sports figures, the big sports guys sometimes didn't want to talk to you, but the pump guys always wanted to talk and the factory guys (laughs) always want to talk. And so I liked that. I liked how welcoming they were. And so, you know, I got into manufacturing. We started um, at the magazine I was at. It was the world's largest pump magazine. I started touring manufacturing facilities going all over the world to see these different facilities. And that just kind of became my my niche was manufacturing and manufacturing facilities. And about six years ago, I guess, I left that magazine and started working on my own. And now I tour manufacturing facilities all the time and write about them for different magazines and different publications. And I write books about them and all kinds of stuff. So, Well, we're going to get into all those books and and what you've experienced at all those factories for sure. But I'm just curious. So is any of what you're doing uh, related to your physical location or have you always been sort of traveling to these places? No, nothing, nothing much is here in South Alabama. (laughs) We do have industry, of course. And in fact, Alabama has a huge Mercedes-Benz facility in Vance, Alabama, near Tuscaloosa. I have been in that one. And and there's a lot of industry in North Alabama, but it has nothing to do with where I am. I travel to these different facilities and they're everywhere, yeah. of course. Yeah. So they're not hard to find. So I, I don't know if we're going to start with the books or the factories you choose, but you have traveled to... 75 plus facilities and you've written books about it. I don't know which one is more impressive. That's first of all, a lot of factories. Let's start there. I've written thousands of articles. I've written three books about manufacturing. And in those three books are 30 different manufacturing facilities. There's about 10 in each. And they're case studies. They're down and dirty. I take you on a tour with me through those facilities. I talk about the different processes that different manufacturing facilities used to be more efficient and to have better plant efficiency and plant operations and plant excellence. And talk about all different kinds of innovations like drones and augmented reality and additive manufacturing and all the things that that we talk about on these podcasts. Um, Just the different kind of the evolution of manufacturing and what's happening out there. So those are things I covered. And then I started the podcast as kind of a spinoff of of that book series. And so it's called Factory of the Future, and it's based on the books, but they kind of complement each other. Because, of course, we're able to have in-depth conversations on the podcast. So tell me a little bit about these manufacturing facilities. So f- first off, they, they started out in the field of pumps, but then you, you broadened the scope. Give me a sense of what's happening on, on the shop floor in some of these right now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, most people know that at every factory has a pump, at least one. Most of them have thousands of pumps. So it's just something that goes hand in hand. I don't just write about pumps and I didn't back then either because we were always writing about, you know, the technology of a pump hasn't changed much in the last 50 or 60 years. You know, it still moves liquid from point A to point B and that's what a pump does. 
And that liquid can be gas, it can be water, it can be wastewater, it can be peanut butter, it can be yogurt, it can be, you know, the viscosity of it changes, but the pump moves the liquid from point A to point B. But what changed and what became exciting to write about and to cover and to talk about was all the automation and the instrumentation surrounding the equipment, not just the pumps, but all the equipment, all the factory facility equipment, as as you know, and you cover on your podcast all the time too, it's the automation, it's the robotics, it's the new innovations that uh, have come on the scene as we get into deep into the fourth industrial revolution and, and moving into the fifth industrial revolution as you talked about on one of your recent podcasts with a really cool woman from Ohio. I listened right. to that recently yeah. talking about how we're really getting into the fifth industrial revolution. But yeah, that's the thing that became the most interesting, the automation and the innovations that were surrounding hmm. the main equipment. And how would you say that the workers that you meet and the and the facility managers as well, how are they reacting to these changes? Are people generally able to stay up to date on all this thing? There's, you know, if you listen to my podcast, one of the big worries I have and a lot of the guests that I bring on is this reskilling challenge, right? So they're sure. clearly yeah. these technologies, yes, you can write about them, but sometimes they take time to learn. And there's many Right. So there's sensors that attach to pumps, but Absolutely. then, you know, there's analytics on top of it. And if you've never seen a computer or maybe don't even have a private email address because that's never been required of you, then suddenly your work, you know, wants you to relearn stuff that office workers have taken for granted and used in their education. But that's never really been required on the shop floor. And now perhaps it is. So it's it a absolutely big is. It absolutely yeah. is. And you're right. Change. It's a big change. And it's really something that we're talking about on the podcast every single week. We like to look at it as this manufacturing skills gap. So you have this older generation of factory workers who have been out there for 30, 40, 50 years on the shop floor, as you say, and they're used to doing things by hand. I mean, they walk around with the tool belt and if something breaks down, they pull out their wrench and they start, you know, working on the equipment. But the new generation that's coming in, they're using remote monitoring and they're trying to find solutions where you don't have to be there. These older guys talk about, it's really fascinating. They talk about walking through the factory floor and I've seen them do it and they can, they can hear something. They use their senses. They can touch the equipment and feel the vibration and know that something's wrong or they can hear it and they know that doesn't sound right or they can even smell it sometimes. They can smell something that's just not quite right. They're using their senses Whereas the new generation is using all kinds of industrial internet of things, condition monitoring, remote monitoring, all these bells and whistles. And like you said, sensors and data coming through all, all these different wavelengths and machines that are talking to each other. And now there's robotics out there. So yes, the learning curve is huge. And it's a big conversation that's happening in manufacturing right now. This, how do we close that skills gap that's happening? Because now this older generation is retiring. Yeah. They were doing this all just from their own brain, from their data resource was their brain and their experience. And how do they transfer all that tribal knowledge to this younger generation coming in? You know, they probably weren't even taking notes. They just knew, okay, this doesn't sound right. That means I need to grease the bearings or I need to, you know, adjust the vibration. I need to do something. They know what to do. 
Whereas the younger generation is depending on some sort of data, some sort of sensor, some sort of alarm to tell them what to do. So there's a big gap there and there's a big learning curve. But to answer your question, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from all these people out there who love to talk about it is at first, I think the older generation is resistant they're resistant to all the new bells and whistles and uh, newfangled innovations that are coming in. But there's usually this aha moment that happens where they start to use the new fancy, bright, shiny equipment or sensors or monitors or whatever that, and they realize, Hey, wait a minute, that just made my job easier. And when they have that aha moment they think, well, if that made my job easier, maybe I should look at this and it's opening their mind, but it generally takes an aha moment. And the same thing is happening with the younger generation. They're saying, wow, this guy really does know what he's talking about. You know, he didn't see my computer screen and see what the sensor was telling me, but, but he knew. So maybe there's a way we can connect these skill levels and these processes that they use and find a happy medium there that works for everybody. So we're seeing that a lot. I'm so curious to how that could happen, though, because like you said, there's so much experience there on the shop floor. But if you kind of just look at it from a quick sort of efficiency point of view, you know, let's install something new, you know, we'll we'll do it much better. How is it possible to in, in, in all of this transition to keep some of that old fashioned, but perhaps really something that is not just lost from the perspective of the individual worker, but there's perhaps something that the technologies and sensors don't pick up that will need to be incorporated. And, you know, we're not necessarily talking about a fully roboticized workplace, you know, at least for a while. (laughs) Some people are. Some people are doing that. There's a big debate out there right now. (laughs) I think I'm on, I'm in the camp where we still need humans. You think? Yeah. I I do. I do. Because you still need humans to do the brain work, to, to come up with the ideas and what are the solutions that we need. And okay, maybe we use a robot to create that solution, but humans still have to be involved and humans still have to keep these machines running. Robots are machines. They break down. They need to be maintained. They need to be repaired. And that takes the human element. And also they have to be designed. They have to be created. And they have to work together, Michelle, right? They have to work together. That's absolutely correct. But yeah, some of the factories are doing different things. Like to save that tribal knowledge, They're asking these guys to make videos, to make how-to videos, or to carry a camera with them, uh, just an iPhone camera or something out to the factory floor when they go to solve a problem and ask the younger guy that knows how to work the iPhone or work the video camera or whatever it is, okay, and video this guy. What did you hear? What, What was the sound that you heard that made you know that something was wrong? Because some of these guys, they may not have the skill to stand in front of a classroom and teach. But when they're out there working with those machines, that knowledge, you can't get it anywhere else. I mean, they're out there doing what they do. And there's a lot of knowledge to be shared through this interactive, just videotaping. And some of them are able to do these how-to videos. This is what the problem is. This is how I identified it. And this is how to solve it. But then they're also taking that to the more you know, futuristic style as well and say, okay, how do we solve that same problem with the sensor? What kind of data points do we need to put into the sensor so that we can solve the same problem with technology Hmm. that this guy solved with experience? And we can't discount that experience. I mean, we're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50 years, decades 
on that factory floor, you can't discount that experience and just replace it with a robot. <laughs> you just can't. Can robots make things more efficient? Absolutely. I also see that as some of these humans are getting replaced by robots, I think that scares a lot of people. We start having that conversation. Yeah. And a lot of my readers and a lot of my listeners are guys that are that are on the factory floor who are running those machines and running those lines. And they are a little bit worried about that. You know, is a robot going to replace me? But what we're seeing is that it gives them a chance to upskill. You know, instead of doing, you know, this mundane task where you do this, this, this over and over and over for eight hours a day, something that a robot can do easily and more efficiently. Maybe they have the opportunity to uh, program that robot or monitor what's going on, or they just have a chance to upskill and do something a little bit more exciting, Hmm. take on a little bit more responsibility and feel a little bit more valued and maybe even make a better salary because they're doing something that's an upskill. So we're seeing a lot of training in that area, training these factory workers to to do bigger and better things. It's exciting. Yeah, I mean, it is exciting. So on the management side, you know, what is the responsibility there to make sure that they keep that enthusiasm? Is it to provide these training programs? And, and how have you seen that work? Are you, I mean, yeah. you must have toured some successful <laughs> facilities and you must have toured some where you saw that there was a sense of despair at some moments, right? I've, I've toured all kinds. Yeah. It runs the gamut from A to Z. I've seen it all. I really have. And, um, you know, I think there's a big discussion to be had about culture and how important that is, and how workers are valued, and how how they are trained to learn to do bigger and better and more things. I mean, some people are certainly happy sitting there doing that same task over and over again for 40 years, but some find a lot of uh, excitement and sense of purpose in finding something a little bit more challenging or a little bit more exciting. And so we are seeing a lot of training programs. So I think that's part of the culture. And and also letting people know, okay, we're not just getting rid of you. We're not just going to fire you. You're not going to be on the street. If you want to continue to work here, what are some skills that you think that you have? You know, they're doing a lot of personality tests, you know, all these different things where they see, they can see what your skills are, what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. So they can kind of identify another position where this person might really excel and really shine and really be happy and fulfilled in their job. We're seeing that a lot, but culture means a lot. In the cultures where they really don't care, they're just like, okay, do this job or find another job. These workers are very unhappy and and they're losing efficiency because of it. Hmm. I think there's something to be said about, uh, what's the Peter Drucker quote? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Right. <laughs> it, it's very true. We see that a lot out there. So factory operations, you know, everyone is continuously trying to improve, right? That's the whole mantra of, of a factory that you kind of think that you, you can make it more efficiently. And if you can, then obviously, you know, some benefits of economies of scale. As you've visited so many of these facilities, what are the, the best strategies to, to improve factory operations? Is there a silver bullet here or does it all kind of depend on yeah. what exactly, you know, is the bottleneck? There's, you can't, there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution. Every factory is different. If I've learned anything from, I'm probably close to a hundred facilities now. I think my bio still says 75, but two things I've learned. One is that no factory is the same. Even if you go into two food and beverage factories, they're different in some way. And they're doing something different 
that's working for them or not working for them. But the other thing that I've learned is that no matter what industry you are, are in, there is something to be learned from people who are doing things successfully. And this is one of the points I make in my book series. You know, if you go into a wastewater facility, you might learn something that will help you in your yogurt processing facility. Now, that sounds like two things that shouldn't go together, and they shouldn't go together, of course, but they may have processes they can learn something, even though they're not in the same industry. And so that's what we're seeing a lot of. There's a lot of idea sharing out there. I think you're finding this too. As you interview more people on your podcast, I'm finding it as well. As I continue to report on the industry, I find that people are willing to share. Maybe they're secretive about proprietary things that they don't want the competition to see, but they're willing to share certain processes, like if a certain CMMS system works well for them or a certain remote monitoring system works well or a certain type of, uh, maybe they're using a drone in a certain way that's really cool and effective. They're willing to share those ideas with their factory community. And that includes all industries and even their competitors in some cases, because sometimes, you know, your machines break down and you need those guys. <laughs> yeah, to help no, you. I agree. I was curious yeah. about this sharing idea of yours because it's potentially very powerful. In many other industries, sharing has become very important. And arguably, oh, sure. you know, in software, for example, you could sort of say that the whole sharing idea once that was really boosted and, and made possible by kind of different, more open systems where, where the sharing could actually lead to learning, you know, because it right. was actually possible to switch approach because the systems have become more flexible. So then there's a more bigger point to learning because in the olden days, you know, switching costs were very, very high. So you could learn something, but it was too expensive to take on board the learning. Where right. are the places that this type of factory knowledge from the floor, where is that shared currently? Are you talking about on your podcasts and things? or I think through podcasts, through articles, through magazines, trade magazines at trade mm -hmm. shows are starting to open back up again. Trade shows have always been a great learning environment. Back in the day, before COVID, I was going to sometimes 50 trade shows a year you know, one a week. That environment is a, a big sharing environment. And I think that's coming back. But I find more and more people that I interview and write about and talk to on the podcast, they're not saying, oh, don't put that or, uh, you know, go ahead and bring your cameras into the factory. It's okay. And maybe don't shoot that right there because that's proprietary and I don't want my competitor to see that, but the rest of it, it's okay. And I'm always happy to oblige that. That's I'm never in there trying to, you know, expose secrets or anything. I've tried to find things that uh, the manufacturing community can benefit from. They see that too, I think. There's just a great atmosphere of knowledge sharing. Maybe it's part of this fourth industrial revolution. You know, I don't know, but it's it's common. Hmm. I'm not seeing anybody really saying, no, you can't come in here. You can't take pictures. I won't answer that question. I'm not seeing that much. So I'm glad to hear that, but there aren't that many factory journalists, if you think about it. I mean, <laughs> podcasting has created many of us, sure, uh, of you know, but you've done it, you know, from the journalistic right. profession side of things. The, uh, you know, the podcasts are a lot. We are a, a, a mixed bag. You know, many don't have media experience, but, right. you know, yes, it's starting to chip at really sharing, you know, deeper and deeper experience. But why is it that factories 
aren't more popular. I'm actually, the more that I've looked into factories and the more fascinating they become to me. It's so interesting, It's right? a mystery that it, not everyone is like all over this. Yeah, you're starting to see a little bit more interest in this because I think that there's a trend happening. I'm just so happy you brought that up because factories are opening their doors to more people. And in either September or October, there's a big manufacturing day that happens or manufacturing month. And factories are starting to open their doors to schools and to the community to come in and come in and see how things are made. You know, there's a great popular television show called How Things Are Made or something like that. Um, It's a great show where it goes in and it shows uh, goes into the Frito-Lay, for example, factory and shows how Doritos are made or how Cheetos are made. And um, I've been in that factory too, by the way. It's really cool. And they're opening the doors. And what, what that's doing is they're trying to hit the younger kids, the kids that are really interested in science and the STEM fields. They're really trying to show them that you can come and get a job as an engineer designing you know, you can design uh, a space rocket. You can design uh, the next Mercedes car, the next cool Batmobile. You can design uh, the next cool potato chip. And there are really opportunities out there in manufacturing for the younger generation, the, these super smart kids that are really interested in the STEM fields. So they're opening the factory doors to get them into manufacturing. It's, it's a big push right now. It's a good trend. I love seeing yeah. it. Yeah, I think the show, or one show, it's at least it's called How It's Made, right? It's yeah, that's it. That's the, yeah, that's it. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, exactly how it's made. And there are so many things left to make exactly. in this world. Oh, for sure. For sure. But when you go to these factories and you see what happens, it's mind-blowing. You're like, who, who thought to do it that way? That's so ingenious. Some really smart person came up with this idea of how how to make this widget or this whatever it is, this cup, this bottle of beer. It's really interesting. And if more people could go into a factory, and factories are opening the doors. Go hmm. in, take a look, take a tour. These guys have spent millions of dollars on these factories. They're proud of them. Yeah. And they want people to come in. They want people to come in and look around. Now, of course, you have to be careful. You have to abide by the rules, of course. You have to sometimes wear the hard hat, wear steel-toed shoes or whatever. You have to be careful because they're liable. I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, being in almost 100 facilities all over the world, I can't tell you how many documents I've signed that basically say, you know, if you die, you die. <laughs> you <Right. know? laughs> and I just always sign it because I'm not going to go that far and not go in. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, because there is a danger there. You have to be careful. You have to watch out for the forklifts coming around. And now some of the forklifts are robots. <laughs> They're yeah. not even run by people. And so you really have to look out and you really have to be careful. So there's those things and you and you have to abide by the rules and wear the safety glasses and the hard hat and all that. But that's a small price to pay to get a peek into how something's made. It's really interesting. Why don't we uh, handle that other side of the coin then? You know, what are some of the challenges that you have seen in these factories? I mean, safety used to be obviously the major concern, both for visitors and certainly for workers, right? I mean, there are Absolutely. many, many worker incidents uh, a year, even in very fairly well-run factories, right? There right. are accident, industrial accidents of various sorts. So that's kind of one challenge. Is that getting any better? 
safety will always be at the top of that list. I think it has yeah. to be because yeah. we're talking about huge equipment and the more the factories are being run by robots and automation, the more careful they have to be yeah. because you just, you don't know when that robot arm is going to swing around and hit somebody. I mean, it happens. There's really heavy, heavy safety precautions. I've been in dozens of manufacturing facilities where I had to actually watch a safety film first. I had to go through safety protocol first. And of course, I always have to sign that piece of paper, <laughs> releasing them from any liability if I do get, if the, if the forklift runs over my toe, you know, or this whatever. This may explain why some school visits, uh, you know, have been, yeah. or they've been think, a little I think hesitant. when they know that school kids are coming, they make accommodations for that. And, you know, they, uh, they always have lanes that you have to stay in. And maybe they just have a couple more people monitoring the kids, making sure they don't fall out of line. And, but I mean, we're talking about high school kids in, in most cases. You know, the high school kids who are interested in science and technology that are coming in. But but yeah, that's a big challenge. Um, I would say, too, that COVID has presented some unique challenges in the last couple of years, of course. I mean, that's a safety concern, too. That also falls under safety. But facilities are having to change the way they operate, not just to protect the people. But it's really interesting because I had a really cool conversation with a guy who was an expert in these smart cities that are being built um, around the world. And they're using some of these smart city technologies in manufacturing facilities. For example, one that I just remembered that uh, came to mind was when you go to a street crossing. Normally, if you're a pedestrian walking and the cars are coming by, you would push the button and wait for the light to signal that you can cross the street, right? So now they're putting like uh, weight monitors, building them into the cement. So you don't have to push a button, just standing there, the weight of a human being standing there signals that light. And so you don't have to touch anything. You don't have to worry about passing germs or COVID or whatever. It senses that you're there. And I could really see how this could be beneficial in a manufacturing facility. Because what if you get too close to a dangerous piece of equipment and the weight senses that equipment to stop working so that robot arm doesn't swing around and hit a human being and injure them? So we're seeing a lot of things like this, um, heat sensors, sensors that say, okay, more than 25 people are in this room right now. And in order to stay six feet apart, you can only have 20 in this room and it's an alarm goes off and five people have to leave or whatever. Things like that, that smart cities are implementing that um, are coming into the factories. It's really fascinating. It's really cool stuff. Yeah. And, and if you think about factory of the future, so much of it, I'm assuming, has to do with engaging that new level of talent and that new generation. So tell me a little bit more about how you envision the factory of the future. I mean, is it going to come from the new types of young people or scores of young people who are talented in unique ways, sort of just the way that I'm, I'm assuming in Ford's original factory, eventually when the word got out that they were actually building an automobile, which, you know, who knew where that was going, smarter and smarter people started flocking to these jobs and said, hey, I want to be part of this. I, I want on my resume that I, I built a car, whatever yeah. a car actually, you know, turns out to be. And, you know, it changed a lot in America. Think about the Rosie Riveters, who uh, these women who came into the factory when all the men were at war and they were building airplanes jet yeah. engines. I think a lot of people are interested in that. But um, I ask this question at the end of every podcast that I do on Factory of the Future. I always say, in your from your perspective, 
what does the factory of the future look like? And of course, I get all kinds of different answers. But what I see is I do see automation becoming more and more prevalent in all factories, even small factories, because now you can automate even a small to medium sized factory with just one sensor that costs $10. You know, you can begin to automate even if you don't have millions of dollars. Um, you can put one sensor on one pump or one piece of equipment and get all kinds of data. So boom, you got one $10 sensor out there, you're automated. Do you think that knowledge is widespread? The fact that yeah. you know, just some tinkering with some we're $10 trying to make sensor? It, yeah, I mean, we're trying to let people know that. I mean, I've had people yeah. come on the podcast and say, you don't have to have millions of dollars to automate. Of course, there are some factories that have 10,000 pumps and they want a sensor on every single one of them. Well, that costs a little bit more money. But you can start simple, as simple as one sensor. I've seen factories who are just starting with automating their warehouse. You know, they just want to have the forklifts automated. They want barcodes on everything in the warehouse so they can find things easily and they can coordinate where the forklifts are at certain times. And if somebody needs something that's on a shelf and the way back in the other end of the warehouse, they can just type in a code or scan a barcode. And all of a sudden the automated forklift goes straight to the place in the warehouse where it is and grabs the piece of equipment or whatever the widget or whatever they want to ship or whatever it is and brings it to the shipping and it all happens. So they're starting there and some are just starting with one troublesome piece of equipment. But we're also seeing this augmented reality happening. We're seeing situations where you just put on, you know, a headset with some goggles and have a tablet or a smartphone and the piece of equipment, the pump or whatever breaks down and they just scan the barcode and all of a sudden the operation manual pops up in front of them in augmented reality, but they can see it and they Mm -hmm. can physically see what they're supposed to do instead of flipping through a paper manual. And also they don't have to store that manual or find that manual. They just scan the barcode and boom, the how to fix it pops up on the screen. And maybe there's some, some guy at his house in the middle of the night who jumps on and says it troubleshoots with them from another part of the world And it happens instantly instead of that expert having to get on a plane and fly to the factory to help out. So we're seeing that happen a lot. We're seeing drones fly through manufacturing facilities all the time. And for example, going to the way to the top of a cooling tower or something like that, where it's really dangerous for a human to go and collecting all kinds of data, thousands of pictures to show people down below what the problem is. And then they send another drone up there to fix it. So it's it's really cool, interesting stuff. But yeah, the factory of the future to me is very George Jetson. You know, it's very (laughs) what we used to think. I can remember uh, thinking, wow, you know, maybe one day we'll have a video phone and look at us now. (laughs) A Zoom conversation is the most common thing in the world now. A TV telephone is in every home, really, that has Mm. a computer or a smartphone. So it's happening fast and it's here and it's going to keep getting better. Yes. What are some other lessons from the podcast? I personally just find it so fascinating to yeah. exactly do what you just said, to connect with people yeah. many times online. And, you know, in my case, because I started this podcast over COVID, but uh, in your case, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of it in person. What are some of the things that have surprised you the most when you got to talk to people over this very interesting format, the podcast? 
Yeah. Every single podcast I find interesting. I learn something new every single time. I mean, I've demonstrated some of those examples already. Um, But there's so many ideas out there. There's so many people who have a different perspective. You know, someone recently said because of the supply chain issues that are happening right now in manufacturing, which are big. I mean, it's a big, big topic, an important topic. They're talking about how the factory of the future might look like just instead of all these robotics and futuristic space stuff that we're talking about that seem so crazy, you know, Star Wars type stuff. Instead of that, they're going to see more smaller factories. So smaller factories, but more of them and closer to the consumer. So there's not these supply chain issues. So if you want to order a book, for example, you want to order a book from Amazon or something, then there's an Amazon facility print on demand just around the corner from you. And you could get that book that day instead of waiting on it to be printed in Germany or somewhere and shipped to Alabama, where I live. But that's true with anything, a a box of cereal or a gallon of milk or something like that. A lot of people think they're just going to be more smaller factories so that the supply chain doesn't become such an issue anymore. So instead of having huge factories in one location that has to ship out all over the world, instead, you can have smaller factories all around you. Yeah, that's a great example. I, I think infrastructure, you know, industrial infrastructure is so interesting because people have obviously all kinds of opinions about it and, and it's costly to make. And once you make it, it's there and it's sort of exactly. you have to deal with it. And, you know, you could invent some new technology, but there's a sunk investment already in these factories. So whatever strategy we put out there, I, I guess manufacturing is still a very physical industry, right? We are still exchanging physical goods. And for as long as we are, it really matters where you put the factory and how it works and how you Absolutely. build it and how fast you can build it and all that stuff. So, And that takes research. The companies, the manufacturing companies have to know where their customers are. They have to know who is ordering their items that they're manufacturing because the biggest thing, you can make the most brilliant product in the world, but if you can't get it to the end user, it's worthless. This has been a big problem in the last year or so. The supply chain issue is, is huge. So I think people are really working on that. And I think that COVID in particular has forced more automation. I think this is another important point to make because it was either close down the factory or work remotely people found a way to work remotely. So a lot of factories were incorporating automation before they thought they were ready because they were forced to because of COVID. We're seeing this too a lot, but now they're glad they did because now they have those aha moments to say, this does make my job easier. It was an investment. Yes, but now it's paying off. So we're seeing that a lot too. So many things to talk about. (laughs) It's a fascinating world of factory (laughs) journalism that we both uh, share a little part in. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Oh, of course. You have just listened to episode 83 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trunarna Unheim. The topic was factory journalism, and our guest was Michelle Segrest, president of Navigate Content. In this conversation, we talked about what's happening in factories these days. My takeaway is that factories are enormously diverse, depending on industry, country, region, and they also change over time. More importantly, they are thriving in a way that public doesn't always appreciate. Getting yourself inside a few factories from time to time might be the best service you can do yourself or for your kids to reorient yourself towards the importance of manufacturing and the important activity of making things, which has not gone away just because of the digital revolution. 
Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 79 on The Future Factory. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.